Hi, and welcome to the FBCC Nature Journal, the podcast for everyone who loves nature. We're coming to you from the beautiful campus at Flathead Valley Community College here at the foot of the Swan Mountain Range. I'm John Fraley, longtime instructor in wildlife conservation here at the college, and I also served 40 years with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And in the Nature Journal, we focus on the critters and quirks of nature found on the campus and the wide surrounding Flathead Basin. Our producer is Colin Burkhart, an employee here at the FECC Library. And thanks to Morgan Ray, the library director, for offering the library as our podcast home. Well, today our guest is Dr. David Long, who is a chemistry professor here at Flathead Valley Community College. Got his PhD at Caltech, and he's a very popular professor here. I know my daughter had him and really liked him. She said he still go, she looked forward to going to class just to listen to him talk. Is that right, David? <laughs> uh, apparently so, yeah. <laughs> he is an ultra runner. He's an outdoor enthusiast, and we'll be talking about some of the ways he ties that into his chemistry knowledge. So, David, thanks a lot for coming on, first of all. Oh, yeah, it's great to be here, John. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, first of all, what advice do you have for young people interested in a career centering on chemistry? Uh, I know you talk about learning tools and, and looking at micro versus macro. What what kind of advice do you have for young people? Well, I think one thing uh, everyone should recognize is that most chemistry experiences start with learning the tools of chemistry. Um, for example, balancing equations and looking at formulas on pieces of paper. And that's really not what chemists do. We use those tools to apply um, and study situations that we have just as much interest and enthusiasm for as biologists do. Um, so there, there's lots and lots of beautiful, beautiful situations out there that are best understood through a chemist's eyes. Okay, and you know, one example of that that you mentioned to me that sounded fascinating, you talked about the chemical backdrop to any ecosystem, and you talked about skiing across Yellowstone and some of the experiences you had there. Tell us about that. Well, uh, Yellowstone, as everybody knows, I think is a super fascinating and beautiful beautiful place and there's some incredible chemistry going on in that park so a couple guys and I skied across Yellowstone Park and spent days in a world without color really browns and grays and of course white and we came upon a fumarole so it's a steam vent in the ground where gas phase sulfur was coming out of the vent and precipitating on the snow forming bright, bright yellow crystals. And it was just a mind-blowing experience for all of us. And we had a lot of conversation about chemistry there. And it's an example of this, this just beautiful scene that no one had ever come upon, maybe. And we were so lucky to be there. And understanding it through a chemist's eyes and knowing what was going on there really made us all enjoy it that much more. So what you saw is you saw this bright yellow color in the snow apparently around this fumarole. So tell us what was going on there exactly, chemistry-wise. Yeah, you know, so there's this uh, very hot gases coming out of the fumarole and of course cold snow and gas phase sulfur is precipitating or becoming solid phase on the surface of the snow. So just big, big yellow, bright yellow crystals of absolutely pure sulfur. It's a very rare and special occasion I can't think of another time that I've seen a pure element out in nature. So, you know, you really feel privileged when you're able to experience that. And, you know, the knowledge of chemistry helps a lot. Um, at least it does for me and an awful lot of people I know. 
Yeah. Well, that brings to mind one thing I'll ask you about this. And what about people that are out panning gold? Okay, and they have an actual gold. Is that would that be considered pure enough to be elemental gold? Yeah, that that would be. That's another great example. I'm not uh, a gold panner, but it's a great <laughs> example of. And of course, it's really popular to do in the western states in Montana. And the density of that gold means that you can use a pan to separate it. It's higher. It's more dense than the other components of the mixture. And and yes, absolutely, little flakes of gold and, and even nuggets that people discover. And maybe that's why people love panning for gold. I'm not sure they make a lot of money doing that. Another popular thing to do is hunt for crystals, and crystals are special. And the specialness of the crystal you can understand from a chemical point of view. And, and again, it's a, it's a fun thing to understand these things. So one of the other things we were talking about was when you're actually out in nature as a human being, you're actually exchanging atoms with the environment all the time, right? You're yeah. not really separate. Explain that no. a little bit. Yeah, it, it's a, so our affinity for nature, one way to understand some science that he, at least supports that is the idea that as you breathe out carbon dioxide, trees are in essence breathing that in. The plants use carbon dioxide to photosynthesize. So if I were to label a carbon atom in your body and it leaves your body, it might subsequently be found in a tree. So you're, you're exchanging atoms with your environment. And so it brings up this idea that, well, wait a minute, are you really separate from your environment, at least as separate as you perceive? And a chemist would say, no, uh, you, the line between you and the tree is blurred by this. That is fascinating when you think about it. You know, you don't realize that you're just... And like you said to me one time last year when I, I was teaching 160, and you made a great point that I used. You said when you, when you eat oatmeal in the morning, you're breathing it out in the afternoon. Tell us about that. Yeah, exactly. So you metabolize your breakfast, and it enters the atmosphere in the form of water and CO2. And then other organisms uh, might incorporate that or otherwise use it or interact with it. And, you know, our relationship with nature, for me, understanding that chemistry really supports the notion that I have a very intimate relationship with nature. And, and it really does help me understand and appreciate and, and extract more joy from the idea that no wonder it feels so great to be amongst the trees. Good point. Because the trees are you and you are the trees, and Walt Whitman has a famous line. <laughs> That's poems. right. You're actually so connected to it, it. How do you even separate yourself? Like in your heart and in your genes, you're part of it. And so you may not even realize it, but you're so part of it, so connected. You know, chemistry, like I was asking you the other day, chemistry is kind of everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and on that level, um, we were joking earlier about, oh, if I... If I took a body part from you and it took a body part from, uh, say, a plant and ground them up at the chemical level, we would have a very, very hard time distinguishing them from one another. So, again, the on the macroscopic level, we don't feel much like we're uh, tightly related to a grass plant. But, in fact, on the chemical level, it's quite obvious that we're from the same mold here. And we all have the same elements. We all have the same makeup of DNA, and we're very similar to other organisms in our DNA. I mean, it's like 80 or 90 percent 
related to DNA in, a, in a, some obscure plant or animal that you can't believe you'd be that closely related to, right? Yeah, exactly, and that's that's the cool and amazing thing. Um, at the molecular level, you understand this. It's quite obvious, and at the macroscopic level, maybe it's sometimes a challenge, but you can feel it. You can feel that underlying chemical relationship, and so I have a lot more confidence in those feelings because of, of my approach uh, mm -hmm. through chemistry, understanding that. Now, this is a little bit of an offbeat thing, but we talked before about Meriwether Lewis noticing that prairie dogs don't drink free water. In fact, there's a hilarious, uh, if you read his, his, uh, the Lewis and Clark detailed journals, they spent half a day in barrels of water trying to catch a prairie dog that <laughs> went down in its burrow. Have you ever tried to do it with a pocket gopher? It's almost impossible. They finally got one. But Lewis actually, he wrote, he was an incredible naturalist, and I think he understood a lot about the, the nature of, of being a naturalist and how, how holistic it is. And he claimed that as far as he can tell, and he uh, predicted that the prairie dog did not use any free water, that it got its water from food, in not only just from the moisture that's in food, but from some process in the food. And then we talked about the endpoint of cellular metabolism when, you, when ATP are finally produced in, in the electron transport system and you have water produced there. So that's what we call, and you said you can call it metabolic water. Mm -hmm. So some of that is what the prairie dog's using, and maybe some of it's from the... But I comment on that, because when I first brought it up, you kind of waved your hand at me like I was crazy or something. But <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I may have waved my hand, but it might have been more excitement uh, talking <laughs> and thinking about things like this, because um, regardless of... Uh, some of the details, it's really fun and exciting to talk to biologists and ecologists um, about what's going on out there, in this case with the prairie dog. And so it is literally true that the prairie dog metabolizes the, say, grass and produces water through the process. And the debate might be, well, what percent of that metabolic water is supporting the prairie dog as opposed to the water in the grass? But right. you pointed out earlier, John, that the grass is really, really dry. Mm -hmm. um, so this is an example of, as a chemist, this is an exciting opportunity to understand something that maybe Lewis and Clark were thinking about at a time where the knowledge of chemistry wasn't there and we could right. make progress right. by applying it, and that's what's right. cool. They're still bleeding people and purging people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, there Lewis was... did more harm than good in his all his doctoring he did. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned also that... Um, Biologists see what they study, and there's a chemical code that you need to know to study chemistry, almost like sheets of music. Explain that. Yeah, so earlier, John, you asked me um, what, if I had any advice for beginning chemists. As a beginning chemist, you'll typically start learning a code. I'm talking about formulas on a piece of paper and equations that represent objects, things, just like an elk is an elk. A carbon atom is a thing, just like an elk is a thing. And this code represents a bunch of behaviors and nuanced behaviors down at the chemical level. And the code is dry, and the code is not fun to look at. But it's like a sheet of music as compared to the sound. And once you become a chemist by studying it and participating in, in projects that involve chemical thinking, then you realize the sheet of music 
in fact represents the sound and eventually you'll be able to hear the sound as a chemist. That is a beautiful analogy. Now I know why my daughter looks forward to going to your class every day. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, David, we're, we're gonna, we've run out of time. We're going to have to do another version. We didn't uh, get to the some of the stuff we wanted to talk about, but thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, yeah. Thank you, John, very much, and I really appreciate being here. That's all the time we have for this episode of The Nature Journal. Thanks for joining us, and I'm John Fraley. I'll see you next time. Thank you.